Hey folks, and welcome to our second episode of In Touch, Queensland Rugby Union's mental health and wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Saucertel from Queensland Rugby, and joining me is a co-host, Susie Russell, our mental health coordinator here at Queensland Rugby. How are we, Susie? Very good, thanks, Sauce. How you doing? Not too bad. And today we're joined by a special guest. He is a current uh, referee at test level, super rugby level, and prior to that, played for Queensland. He's played overseas. It's former halfback, now referee, Nick Berry. How are you, mate? Very good. Thanks, mate. Uh, thanks for having me on. No, mate. Thanks for agreeing to come on, mate. It's um, it's great to get some some former players um, who are all still involved with the game, mate, to get a bit of insight. Uh, before we get into the, the crux of today's podcast, folks, it's important to remind everyone that some of the content that will be discussed, it can be sensitive in nature. And, and should you feel the need to reach out and seek some help, Lifeline's a great option. You can contact them on 13 11 14, or there's some information on the Queensland Rugby website with some other support lines that you can contact. Um, before we sort of dive into, uh, I suppose, the sort of the heavier side of things today, um, Nick, obviously... Well, I grew up watching you, mate, and uh, enjoyed going to, to Suncorp to see Paul in the Queensland jersey. Um, some of our listeners, mate, uh, wouldn't have known much about your playing career, mate. Um, do you want to walk us through, mate, what sort of your first experiences was with rugby and then sort of how that all transitioned um, through to schoolboy and then on to higher honours, mate? Yeah, no, no, no worries, mate. Firstly, thanks for making me feel so old. <laughs> um yeah, look, I, I guess I, you know, much much similar to, um, to to everyone who's played the game, I sort of started that uh, at a young age. Um, I think I was sort of, you know, six or seven years old, and and did the regular thing. I was sort of playing uh, locally uh, for my club. I was a sort of Kemal Bears junior, um, playing rugby league as well uh, down there at Centenary. So I sort of juggled that on a Saturday and Sunday. Um, but you know, sort of really. Uh, Really, just enjoyed the game. Really, I just enjoyed sport, um, and so I continued that through. And going to the school I went to, uh, playing rugby union on a Saturday, I, I could only choose the one uh, club, uh, whether that be league or union. And uh, by that stage, mate, I'd, I'd, I'd really sort of uh, taken a liking to, to rugby union in particular. So I uh, continued playing club footy uh, during the weekends in my younger years at high school, um, and then. Uh, yeah, look, I just continued playing through school and, you know, I was very fortunate in uh, after school and getting an opportunity there at the Reds and spent a few years there before before heading overseas. Yeah, mate, obviously um, you went to school at Ipswich Grammar and then uh, before coming through to the Reds, mate, you spent some time at, um, at Sunnybank. Um, and you would have been at Sunnybank at a time where there's sort of some great names there, mate, like uh, Timmy Sampson, who's now head coach over at the Western Force. Uh, there would have been guys like Greg Holmes starting to come through the ranks, mate. It must have been a good time to be a Dragon. Uh, yeah, it was. And, and uh, to be honest, also, I didn't really have any sort of affiliation with, with a senior club. Um, like I said, I, I played at I played at Kemal Bears and, and we folded in about under 12 because we didn't have numbers to make a team. And I ended up doing a, uh, a couple of years over at Jeeps. Um, we won't hold that against you, mate. <laughs> But uh, when when it sort of came to senior rugby, I, I really didn't have any affiliation to any clubs, and um, I, I certainly was was wasn't a superstar throughout school. So there was really no indication there that I was ever going to sort of play the game professionally. Um, but uh, and so I went to a few different training sessions at a few different clubs, and um, but I, I felt at the time that that Sunnybank was going to be going to be the right um, right right uh, decision for me. Um, 
and I think looking back now, it was probably the smartest decision I made in my rugby career. I think uh, Damon Amtage was was a young coach out there at the time. Um, and uh, and though I knew I'd sort of be starting in Colts 2, I, I sort of felt I'd be learning more there in Colts 2 than I would at Colts 1 at any other club. So um, it, it was a particularly great time there to be going to Sunnybank. Uh, the club were really starting to build. We had a good Colts year that year. Um, and we had, you know, a plethora of, 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 of Reds players. You know, we had, like you said, we had um, Greg Holmes and Rodney Blake and Holly Arve and Digby. Um, all, all there at the same time, and a couple of older guys too, like Timmy Sampson, Dan McConaughey, guys who Brad Tronk, who played hundreds of games for the club. So it's a really well balanced team, and um, and and like I said, it, it probably made my career. I sort of got an opportunity to, in Colts one that year, and everything went well. Um, and then I sort of springboarded into the Queensland Under 19s from that setup, uh, and and then you know one opportunity led to another. Um, so I'm very grateful for, for everything that Sunnybank did for me, particularly uh, in those first few years starting out. And obviously you, you played a, a bit of um, Australian rep stuff at under-20s level, as it was then, not, not under-20s. Um, and then you've gone on, mate, to make your, your Reds debut in, in 2005, mate. Um, how did you first sort of end up, I suppose, with that progression from Sunnybank to the Reds? How did that sort of first come about? Uh, well, yeah, like I alluded to earlier, I was—I really wasn't anything special at schoolboy uh, level. You know, I didn't make any of those rep teams, not Queensland schoolboys or anything like that. Um, so I, I came out of school relatively unknown, I guess, uh, you know, to some extent. Um, and uh, funnily enough, the Australian schoolboys halfback from my year, he actually went to Sunnybank. Um, so I knew that, you know, I'd if I was ever going to sort of make something of myself, I'd be better better putting myself up against, you know, the best of that age group. So, um, and, and Damon, to his to his credit, he, he said, look, we're going to train together. Both squads are going to train together. Um, and I'll be here to catch every every ball you, you throw and every kick you kick. So um, he, I sort of was always I was a player who, who probably had to work harder uh, to just to sort of even compete at a, at a level sort of, where I wanted to be at, um, and Damon was great for that because he 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 would he would help with extras and things like that. So, um, and he also said he said the best player will play, um, and I believed him. So you know it was sort of halfway through that year uh, that I got my opportunity in Colts one, and I think that's probably when really everyone sort of started to say, well, you know we're expecting this Australian schoolboys halfback to kick on, uh, yet there's this this kid out at Sunnybank who's who's got the Colts one position and. Um, and, and I think that's what led to the, the Queensland under-19s. And, and I guess from there, it's, it's just all about taking those opportunities. You know, I sort of spent uh, three months on a training contract with the Reds, essentially just holding the pads so the bigger boys can run over me. But, oh, you know, I got in, in, immersed in the environment and, and then got an opportunity to train with them. And that got extended to a six-month, which led to my first year contract. And then, you know, another two years after that. And I guess you, the momentum behind your career sort of builds off um, – of of taking those opportunities, so um, you know, never never would I have thought that that I, I would have played professionally. I think when I when I left school, it, it certainly would have been something that I I would have loved. Um, but but when it all actually happened, and I, and I, I managed to sort of see the world and play for some fantastic some fantastic clubs and and meet some wonderful friends who are still really close friends today. I'm I'm thankful for for everything that rugby provided for me. 
Now, mate, obviously you were at the Reds from 2004 to 2007, 33 games across that time. And during that period, you picked up two uh, hospital cups with, with Sunnybank, which is always a good time. Um, but then, mate, at the end of the 2007 season, um, you made the made the call to head over to France to um, to Racing Metro, one of the bigger clubs um, in the top 14 over there, mate. Um, talk us through sort of the decision, mate, to make the move because you would have probably been... Um, among sort of the first sort of cohort of Aussie players to really go over and um, experience what what life's got to offer abroad in rugby. Yeah, I think back then you sort of had to consider the the, the rugby environment here in Australia. There wasn't um, there wasn't really an avenue like we have now with the NRC where where you could continue your development post Super Rugby. So. Um, I'm showing my age here, but you know when I first started, it was Super 12. So you know we we had we had 11 games, and and if you're in the position that I was, where a lot of those were off the bench, you know you might get 10, 15 minutes here and there. Uh, you might be lucky enough to start a game. Um, so when you add those minutes up over the the course of a the season, there's really only sort of a handful of you might put together uh, four games worth of minutes. Um, and then, you know, sort of 2007 rolled around. It was a really difficult year for the Reds. Um, but personally, I, I you know, I, I really found that that was probably the year that I really grew as a, as a player. You know, I got to start essentially every game. There was in Sam Cordingly, who was the Wallaby scrum half at the time, uh, injured his um, injured his foot and was out for the for the season. Um, and I, I, I just loved that opportunity to start games and, and really work on it from week to week. Um and uh, I knew Sam was on contract for a few more years, and essentially, mate, I was just kind of game hungry. You know, I was I was really eager to to keep progressing my game and become a better player. And I and a contract popped up to go to Paris, um, where I could pick up two European seasons. And you know, they play thirty games a season over there. And I, I spoke to the Reds about it. I was you know completely transparent with them about you know, what my intentions were about, you know, sort of heading over there for essentially 18 months and only maybe miss one Super Rugby year, but I could potentially pick up sort of 50, you know, top quality games and come back a better player. Um, as it, They gave me their blessing to, to go and and, and uh, looking back, it was probably a really smart decision because uh, there was a young scrum half at the time who was kind of nipping at my heels. Uh, and he he went on to become one of the one of the best scrum halves in Australia for, for the last you know sort of twenty thirty years, and that was Will Genya. So I, I probably I probably got lucky with that decision too because I don't know how long how long my career would have lasted had I stayed uh, in Australian rugby. Um, and and I never I never regretted the decision to go over to, to 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 Paris. It was a wonderful club, and 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 it was a fantastic time to be a part of what they were trying to build there. Um, uh, and and I've met some. You know, just so, some wonderful people, and and we were just thrown from all over all over the world. So you know, we had different cultures there. I learned a lot about um, other other people. I learned a lot about myself and and my partner at the time, uh, who's now my wife. I mean, we just had the, the most wonderful three years in Paris, um, sort of seeing a lot of Europe, and um, and I think as a player too, I've, I've probably added aspects to my game. Which are which are quite unique to, to Northern Hemisphere rugby. Um, it's funny you hearing you talk about that two thousand and seven year, mate, because I just I remember that quite vividly. I was in grade twelve at the time, and uh, avidly following it. And I do remember um, accordingly getting injured, you starting, and then this uh, this young fella in Will with an afro on the bench, 
um, having no idea who he was. Um, so fond memories. Um, but I, mate, before we touch on the next move then, which was to London Wasps, um, we'll bring, bring Susie into the conversation. Um, so it's not all rugby. Um, <laughs> obviously, uh, Susie, you've heard Nick talk so much about all these different experiences he's sort of, um, had through rugby and, uh, obviously how thankful he is for all of it. Obviously that sort of ties into a lot of stuff around, um, you know, well-being and, and mental health in terms of that enjoyment um, that he's getting out of, I mean, what is his job, but obviously a, a hobby and a passion that he's heavily invested in. Yeah, I think it's uh, really great to hear, I guess, what um, fond memories you have from the early days of rugby. Um, what I'm pretty interested to hear um, from you is about, you've spoken a bit about Damon at Sunnybank and how I guess he created an environment for you that meant you could grow and you could develop as a person and as a, as a player. And maybe it'd be good to share um, just with the listeners from a coaching perspective some of the specifics of what you felt he did to create that environment for you and make you feel, um, I guess, a positive effects of being part of a community, being able to fail and learn um, and having that kind of growth and sense of accomplishment. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So that's a great question. I think I think first and foremost, the thing about Damon was was he was he was completely honest in, in everything that he said and, and, and everything that he did in terms of he was just such an authentic sort of guy. Uh, you couldn't help but believe in him. Um, and I think the I saw you could probably remember that that Sunnybank team at the time, we were playing a style of rugby which was not similar to, to anything else that, that any of the other clubs were playing at the time. It was it was a really sort of risk versus reward sort of style where we would move the ball about. We had some damaging runners and some guys who could really sort of create some opportunities. And Damon really backed that. Um, he he created an environment at training where he wanted you to to go out there and um, and and really back yourself. You know. Uh, and, and I guess it probably took a couple of months before the players really bought into it. But um, I, I, then when we did, I think we, we carried that through, not only through Colts, but a lot of those guys went up to premier grade the following year. And, um, and, and we, like, like sources, as earlier mentioned, you know, we managed to win a couple of premierships um, playing a style of rugby, which was in, incredibly attractive. And um, so I, I guess... You know, like in terms of an, uh, cultivating an environment which which you know you know individuals can grow. Um, you know, we we were never sort of we never felt like if we you know obviously things went bad on the field sometimes and we didn't have performances that we were particularly proud of. Uh, but it was never a uh, a mentality where he said right I, we need to stop what we're trying to do. It, it would be about sort of amending what we were trying to do and then I guess reiterating those those patterns of play which we were trying to um, trying to instill um, and then maybe just tweaking a few little things like that. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I think, you know, in terms of some of the things that I, I look back on in my rugby career, th those years and particularly those premierships there with Sunnybank are, are some of the fondest memories I've got. Um, I think club rugby just in general is, is just such a pure... Uh, pure part of the game uh, because you're playing with a lot of guys who are who, who are amateurs essentially who are, who are working you know, sort of nine to five jobs and then and then turning up you know three nights a week uh, to train train their asses off um, for the love of it and and I think the further you sort of go up um, 
I, I guess in terms of the professionalism, the more you, you might lose that, that love sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's super interesting to hear, like, I guess the benefits of, of that club level of, of playing to enjoy. And it sounds like there's an environment very much that you were taught about, you know, you're part of something that's bigger than you as a team. And I think um, in terms of creating accomplishment and a sense of belonging, that's something that coaches should always, I guess, drive for. Um, and I love as well how you touched on sort of the ability for, you know, that amateur level or the, or the balance of other things in your life and, would be good, I guess, to just hear a couple more sentences about how, as a young man, you enjoyed that rugby club experience to be able to balance some of the other challenges, whether that be like work or relationships or whatever else you're experiencing at that age and share things with your friends around that. Yeah, yeah sure. I think, um, I think looking back, you know, like club rugby at that particular time in my career was, was almost like that almost like a pressure valve release where you sort of have the intensity and the scrutiny of, of, of super rugby. Um, and then once that would all be done and dusted, you could go back to club rugby and really just enjoy the game for what it was. Um, so I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't have that balance when I, when I was a young professional player. I, I thought that I needed uh, to just to throw everything into, into being a rugby player and probably neglected a lot of other areas in my life uh, to the detriment, not, not only to to, to uh, my rugby playing ability, but probably to my to my you know mental I guess mindset. Um, and uh, it wasn't until later in my career that I, I really got the grasp of getting that balance right. And I think that wasn't until that it was actually forced upon me um, because you know as as you, as you uh, I guess mature, um, I had other things going on in my life which really kind of put rugby in perspective. Um, you know, I got married, became a father, and I think there's no there's no more grounding um, life experience than becoming a father and, and having this this newborn to care for. Um, I think everything else pales into in, in comparison. So rugby then probably became what what rugby should have always been, and that was just a a wonderful opportunity to get paid to do something that you actually love. That's great to hear, Nick. So Nick, when you headed over to France, obviously you were there with with Racing for for about four seasons, amassing a total of around fifty one caps. Um, then headed over to England to London Wasps, and um, while in London, obviously you played forty six games there, mate. But um, your time at the Wasps, mate, was uh, was cut short. Um, do you want to walk us through, mate, sort of the series of events that happened there? Um, that sort of led to the ultimate decision for you to, um, I suppose, prematurely retire. Uh, yeah, sure, yeah, sure, mate. So, um, yeah, I, like you said, I, I had the, the three years there in Paris, and then um, had an opportunity to sign with Wasps. Obviously, Wasps at the time were were one of the really sort of powerhouses in rugby up there in the Premiership, and I guess the opportunity to go and play Heineken Cup rugby. Which was known as, as at the time was um, was was a big driver in that. Um, also, my wife and I uh, were ready to start a family, and we 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 probably sort of more saw that happening in 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 England. Um, and I also probably had one eye on post rugby and what I was going to do then. And I thought that making that transition uh, post professional rugby, I could probably do that a little bit easier in an English speaking country than I than I could there in Paris. So. 
Uh, there was a few a few factors there which which influenced my decision to go to to, to Was. Um, uh, and, and like uh, a lot of those other things that I spoke about, you know, earlier, it, it's a decision that I'm I'm really thankful for because um, uh, once again, I you know the rugby was different, uh, and so as a player, I felt like I grew, but personally as well. Um, it, 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 it was a wonderful opportunity to, to, to go there and, and to do some work on the side, uh, uh, to start a family um, and, and play some really tough rugby. I think the premiership's unique uh, in the fact that, um, I guess because of the salary caps over there that they, and the way they're enforced is that, that every team is, is uh, uh, quite competitive, uh, whereas top 14 at the time, you'd have a handful of clubs who could really dominate those those other teams who were in the lower half of the, the competition. So from a rugby perspective, it was really good. Um, in terms of my injuries, uh, I mean, I had suffered some, some, I guess, more than my share of, of, uh, of head injuries before I got to Watts. Um, uh, they were aware of that. Um, I'd, I'd had a few in the, in the season leading up to, to my signing. Um, but, you know, at the time, I guess there wasn't really a lot known about um, head concussions and, and what the implications were for for repeat, uh, I guess, um, concussive episodes. Uh, the first year at Wasp went went relatively unscathed, and it wasn't until seasons two and three where I started to get a few more um, a few more uh, concussions, and and the doctors started to get quite concerned about about why I always seemed to be more susceptible to to getting concussed and, and, um, and I guess one of the other concerning factors was, is that the symptoms that I would, I would experience post concussion, uh, seemed to be, uh, becoming more significant and lasting longer as well. So, um, but essentially it was, it was, it was a, it wasn't a decision that was made overnight. It, it was something where the club and the medical team at the time, uh, really, I felt, they always had my best interests at heart, um, and and they were sending me to, to the best of the best in terms of you know sort of the neurosurgeons and and whatnot to try and get to the bottom of of what was happening. Unfortunately, uh, no one really knew uh, a lot about or about head concussions and and the implications for you know sort of further down the track in in terms of you know potentially early onset dementia and depression and all this sort of stuff. So. Um, it, it's it, it was sort of a, a case of well well let, let's just see how it goes we'll, we'll, and I had extended periods of time off you know I might have you know up to two to three months off and then and then come back and and I'd be good for a trot and then I'd, I'd, I'd suffer another knock um, uh, but and and I guess the the decision in the end was kind of taken out of my hands as to as to whether I can play or not. Um, over there, you, you need obviously a medical certificate to be fit to play, and uh, basically the, the neurosurgeon just didn't wouldn't sign off on that medical certificate and said, "No, nah, look, you're at too too great a risk now. Um, we don't know what sort of damage is um, is has either happened or, or will continue to happen." So um, that that sort of made the decision for me. So um, as you said, I retired sooner than I thought. You know, I was only 27 at the time. Um, but I, I, I'm thankful for for, for everything, uh, you know, that, that all the experiences that I got out of rugby up until that point. Now, mate, obviously, you know, during this period when, as you mentioned, you'd be taking these long breaks away from playing, um, and I suppose there is a, a cloud of doubt 
over whether or not um, you know how long your career would um, would go on for. And like I know from um, from you know following sort of the games back then and reading up now, you know um, you had quite a good stint on field at Wasp, and there was potential for your contract to go on longer there. But obviously, this put everything in jeopardy. How tough was that, mate? To um, I suppose be away from the group when you're spending these times at home trying to deal with the symptoms of concussion, um, away from your teammates to, to deal with that? And what sort of support did you get from uh, from Wasps and obviously in your home life as well during that time? Yeah. Um, yeah, look, like I, you know, like, like I mentioned earlier, I think, I think the, medical, the medical team, um, they, they did everything they could to to ensure that they were looking after my, my long-term health. And um, uh, whilst I was having those extended periods of not being able to play, I, I was still heading into the club each day. I was still training with the guys. So from, from a social aspect and from a physical aspect, um, I, I could still train um, and I could still, you know, sort of feel like I was part of the team, even if, even if I couldn't sort of do any contact or, or take the field to play. Um like for me personally, like though it was it was really tough to get my head around is is because physically I felt I felt well enough to play, and I think that's something that a lot of you know athletes really um, struggle to understand is is you know if we if we have a, a dislocated shoulder or a broken bone, you can understand that you can feel that you can see the X ray, um, and you understand that that needs time to mend. Um, when I was suffering these sort of post-concussion symptoms, um, it, it wasn't something, you know, where physically it was limiting me in, 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 in any sense. I could turn up to training, I could joke with the guys in the change rooms and I could get in the gym and do what I needed to do um, and then go home but then kind of fall apart. So, um, uh, and it wasn't at the time, I didn't really know, but it wasn't until later, you know, once the, once the, the retirement had happened that, that I found out that a lot of the time the medical team were actually sort of liaising with my wife um, who would, would report back about my sort of mental state and, and how I was going and um, because I, I just didn't know something, in all honesty. You know, like I physically felt well enough to play. I wanted to play, obviously, desperately wanted to get back out there. Um, uh, but I guess the, the concern was that, um, I might be one more head concussion away from something that, that could be, you know, really, really significant. So, um, my, my wife, she was an incredible support to me throughout, um, that, that period, those two to three seasons there. Um, and, and I think, you know, looking back on it, it's, um, I guess as a, as a, professional athlete you you have this little streak of selfishness you know where you say well it's my body i can do what i want with it and if i get out there and and you know i, I break this or i strain that then then that's an occupational hazard um whereas when i saw that the the i guess the anguish and and the apprehension that, that my family were having particularly my wife every time i took the field you know i guess it hit home when i sort of thought well you know, I, this is bigger than me now. You know, I'm, I'm a husband and I'm a father and, and Mel was pregnant at the time with our second. So um, it, it probably wasn't fair, uh, I guess, to, at that time doing what I was doing and, and that was just trying to get back every time after I'd had these concussions. Wow. It's a, it's a hard realisation to come to. Yeah, I think I think it, it was. And, and 
and particularly when those who have supported you the whole way through um, your career, you know, their, their, their thought wasn't so much about like, I hope he plays well. It was like, I hope he doesn't go home in an ambulance, you know? So it was, it was, it was pretty awful, I think for, for the, you know, my loved ones to, um, to come to games or to watch from, you know, from, from back here in Australia uh, particularly when I did suffer a concussion and I and I had to get taken off the field um, because I just I, I guess no one really knew anything at the time. It wasn't like a, a knee injury where they can cut it open and have a look and fiddle around and try and fix it. Um, you know, the, even the best these these best surgeons and um, the best specialists, you know, they were sort of saying, look, we, we we frankly we just we don't know enough about it at this point in time and. And then that movie, I, I'm sure you'd be aware of it, that concussion movie had just dropped and all that stuff about the NFL players and um, the, I guess, the, the repercussions of, of getting successive head injuries. Um, that had just come out and, and that just stirred, stirred the, the hornet's nest and I had mum on the phone every day telling me to stop playing and... Um, yeah, look. In the end, it just it certainly wasn't wasn't worth it, you know. Um, but it's hard at the time. Jeez, it's hard when when all you all you're really doing is um, what you what you love, and then um, and physically you feel like you can do it. Um, but there's there's the, the, you know the the reality is that you shouldn't be doing it. Nick, it's pretty interesting to hear. Like, it's it's great your honesty and um, I guess those emotions that you felt and trying to process them and knowing or balancing what was best for you and what was best um, for your health versus what your um, immediate interests were. Um, and I guess the consideration of your family that you had and what I've got out of listening um, to that bit of your story was, I guess, how important that regular communication and openness with the medical and support staff were. And that's so great to hear that it was able to be discussed, you know, not just your short-term consideration on whether they wanted you to play right then, because I'm sure everyone did, but, actually about you as a human and your your long-term um, growth and development. And I think um, that communication and then also how closely you relied on, on your support networks um, really stood out to me. Um, and I think, I think it's important for us all to reflect that, that that significant person or significant people in our life can be friends, family, uh, coach, another, another teammate. And, having those conversations, I guess, about how you're feeling about something that is less visible is super important. Um, and I'm really glad to hear that, although a bit of emotional turmoil at the time, you were able able to do that. Um, and I think, I guess, being real about that self-doubt or uncertainty or what was beyond rugby um, or beyond playing rugby for you um, is something that a lot of people come with and maybe handling that grief. Um so yeah, maybe just a little bit more on how how you feel like you've learnt to process emotions over the few years, like whether it was specifically at that time or what you feel like you've learnt now would be good to share with people. Yeah, yeah, sure, Susie. I, I think, um, uh, look, at, at the time, um, it, it was difficult for me to, to, to process it all because uh, a lot of the time after I'd, I'd suffered these concussions, you know, one of the symptoms obviously would be loss of memory. So I, I never really um, had a good grasp of how I got knocked out or what I was like in the 48, you know, 72 hours post-concussion. Um, uh, and it, it wasn't until that, um, you know, I started, I guess, you know, 
getting some other symptoms about, you know, sort of anxiety about, you know, um, uh, you know, because I, because I guess largely because I forgot, I, I would forget about, about, you know, did I do something? Did I forget to do this? Where have I put the keys for the car? I, uh, how do I get home from, you know, from here or, or anything like that? It was just like, um, I, I started to see the strain that it was having on, on particularly my wife at the time we had my son, Will was, he was about a year old at that stage and my wife was pregnant with our second, um, which is, you know, like any young family, you know, stresses come with, 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 with juggling young kids. And, um, this, this was really just sort of adding to the pressure, I think of, of, um, of what was going on at home. Um, so, you know, looking back, uh, you know, I, I would have grey days um, where I, I didn't feel like doing a whole lot. Um, and, and uh, yeah, you know, I think it was harder on my wife, you know, that, in all honesty than it was on, on me actually going through it because um, she she was probably more aware of it than, than I was, you know, if, if I was just, you know, not, not behaving in my normal way. Um, she, you know, obviously she was really in tune with that. Um, and uh, I, I guess looking back, you know, it, it wasn't until, you know, the, the neurosurgeon actually said, okay, well, you're not allowed to play anymore. So even though I had I just signed a new contract with WAS and, and all that, um, you know, in terms of my financial future had been had been sort of my immediate financial future had been locked away. Uh, I just thought, well, I, I can't play. Like, And it was devastating at the time, but, geez, it didn't take long to actually then – I had this weight lifted off me about um, about oh geez I, I don't I won't have to get knocked out again I won't have to worry about um, what what could potentially happen um, and that came really quickly post my retirement and and I, I I just think I'd learnt to live with that pressure and that and that's unknown about will I get knocked out again will this next time be something significant um, and, and all that sort of stuff so. Um, I guess you you learn to live with the with with the pressure. I, I guess a little bit, um, but but I think those closest to you, you know, like in, in my case, my spouse, my wife, you know, it was it was really tough on her, um, and uh, you know, we, we we've we've always been really close. You know, having having moved overseas at an early stage it was just the two of us and we had no one else but each other to be able to sort of communicate our feelings about how we were feeling and if we were having a, a rainy day or if we we're having a good day um and uh and i think what we've done is we've just tried to adopt that in our everyday lives now so um when we do have a um have a tough day we we are open to talk to it uh to to, to one another about it and unfortunately, I've got some other close friends back here, and and some colleagues in at work um, that I can talk to about about that sort of stuff. Because, <laughs> as you probably can imagine, you know, uh, being a being a referee, it's, it's not an overly positive profession. <laughs> There's a lot of negativity in in uh, that's tied up with the role itself. So it, it's incredibly important as a, as a referee, probably more so. I think you know, in my in my opinion, more so than than when I was a player. It's incredibly important that I have, um, I have that that opportunity to talk about what it is I'm going through. Um, otherwise, it would be a, a really, really lonely profession, um, and and a really difficult one to to juggle on your own. Yeah, Nick, I can almost um, sense there in your voice. I guess the relief that that power of of taking charge or or having that decision even taken out of your hands a bit 
um, had on you, but it's really, um, I guess, nice and refreshing to hear you talk about some of those anxious feelings that you're experiencing at the time, even though maybe you weren't that aware of that was what you're experiencing. And I guess I just wanted to touch, there's, I mean, it's a bit of contentious research space and there's still lots of work to do, but there is some links um, that we know between um, repeated concussions and, and potential increase in experiencing depressive symptoms or confusion and concentration issues like you kind of spoke around. Um, and I think it's just really important that, you know, with any physical injury that we talk about those um, emotional or, or other injuries or sides that we might we might come with that. And I think, yeah, hopefully people can take from your experience that, you know, uh, having people around you who could spot changes in behaviour or the way that you're interacting um, and also the benefit you got from, you know, making a decision and speaking up about how you felt um, at the time and what you've taken forward into life now is really great to hear. Um, Nick, I suppose since um, since your incident with concussion, mate, uh, there's been a lot of other players in recent times who, who've also sort of struggled with um, with the same sort of uh, problems and some of them are quite high profile. We've had Beric Barnes and Anthony Fanger from an Australian point of view and then overseas, um, Ben Johns, who was a centre at Ospreys, he was forced to retire at 27, same age as you, Alistair Hargraves, an ex-Saracens player, and... Um, Wales flanker Justin Tipperick, he lost sight for a period from 2016. This is it's it's clearly uh, an issue within rugby that um, it is becoming more prevalent. I suppose with the more contact heavy um, way the game's evolving. Yeah, mate, no, I, I I'd agree. I think um, I, I guess like if 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 I think back to uh, when I was a junior. And the games I used to watch, you know, whether it be rugby or rugby league, um, you know, it, it would, you know, players would be concussed and clearly knocked out on the field. And it was almost like a badge of honour just sort of, you know, get a tap on the bum and continue on and finish the game. Um, and I just, I see the the progression that, the you know, that professional sport has made in terms of head injuries from, from you know, sort of 20 years ago to where they are now. And it's really encouraging. Um and like you said, there are a lot more players now who uh, are aware of, of um, you know, the implications of, of repeated concussions. Um, and, and not just them, but the medical staff, the laws of the game are now there trying to protect players and, and, and their mental, or I guess, you know, from, from their head injuries. Um, so it, it, it has really, really developed, particularly in this last sort of 10 years. Um, uh and I think there'll be continued to be law changes in there to try and protect the players a little bit more, um, and, and it, which which is important and it's fantastic because, um, like you said, you know that it's a high contact sport and and strength and conditioning and things like that have have come on in leaps and bounds, you know, over these last sort of fifteen years. And players are stronger and bigger and faster um, than they ever have been before. So you know and that translates to to, to harder collisions and. Um, Unfortunately, you can't get in the gym and, and make your brain any stronger. So whilst, whilst we're, I guess, using our bodies as a vehicle to sort of smash into each other, uh, you know, it's the same brain that's, that's rattling and rolling around in, a, in an 80-kilogram frame or, or is a 120-kilogram frame. So um, the, the implications of these um, higher collisions are more concussions. So, um, 
like I said, it's encouraging that the game's making making strides to try and, and, and limit that as much as possible. Very true, mate. Now, obviously, you finished up at Wasp, mate, in 2013, and it was only two years later that you were refereeing Queensland Premier Rugby and in the NRC here in Australia. Um, but, mate, obviously, there's the transition period there um, between finding a new avenue to stay involved with the game and returning to Australia, mate. Talk us through um, the move back and then how you first actually got involved with uh, with refereeing. Uh, yeah, look, look so, so when the retirement happened, I guess, you know, r- rugby was the thing that was keeping us away from, from our family and friends back here in Australia. So once that had finished, uh, you know, Mel and I sort of packed up the kids and moved back to Australia. And and whilst rugby had been wonderful for for us, um, I, I did at the time, I sort of thought that, um, that I wasn't going to be involved again at a professional level. Um, you know, I was looking forward to to being involved and maybe coaching my kids one day or being an avid supporter, but I never did. I think that I was going to be involved in a, uh, in a professional capacity. Um, and it wasn't until I sort of moved back and was uh, settled in in terms of what, what I'd planned to do sort of post-rugby uh, where Andrew Cole, who, who was a ex obviously international referee here in Australia, but had, had also refereed me at super rugby uh, met up with me and sort of, well, basically tried to convince me to, to, to pick up the whistle and give it a go. And, um, you know, like it, what, what he was saying was made a lot of sense, you know, I guess at the time, you know, a lot of transferable skills and things like that. And um, I'd been out of the game for about 18 months and I was I was missing it. Um, so the opportunity to get back involved again was alluring. Um, and once I once I did give it a go, um, it 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 was it was fantastic and i think you know sort of i'd missed that high performance environment um that rugby had provided and you know refereeing was just i guess a different but but another aspect of of being involved in the game at, at a high level uh and it just went from from you know one opportunity to the next and i was thoroughly enjoying it and mate, obviously, as you mentioned, it's gone from one opportunity to the next. You've had a pretty meteoric rise through the refereeing ranks. Obviously, you've done, as we've mentioned, club rugby here in Brisbane, through to the NRC, onto Super Rugby, and um, as of last year, mate, you were a World Cup referee. Um, yeah. Having the opportunity to go to Japan, mate, it's um, it's pretty crazy, mate, to think that you know, despite the doom and gloom that would have been around, mate, when you had to make these calls as to whether you were playing again. The, the different opportunities that refereeing has been able to provide you to stay involved with the game and obviously become your, your profession as it is at the moment. Yeah, it, it has, man. And, I, and um, it's, it's been wonderful, you know, and I'm, I'm so thankful for, for, for Andrew Cole for, for seeking me out at that time because, in all honesty, refereeing was, was certainly not something that I'd ever considered, you know, not, not, not whilst I was playing and not in retirement either. So, um, it uh, and I don't know why it didn't figure in a lot of players' minds back then. I think you know now, um, having seen a, cu- a couple of ex-professional players go into refereeing, it, the, the seed has been planted there that um, that potentially it is a career path that some players might want to want, want to head down. But um, yeah, like, like you said, it's been it's it was about to a fire initially. You know, I sort of got thrown into Super Rugby after just a handful of games here at Club Rugby and NRC. Uh, but I guess, 
you know, in my situation, it was a little unique in, in, in that I was, I was used to the environment itself. It was just more the refereeing aspect of it that, that I needed to get used to, where it's sort of for, for a traditional pathway referee, it's, it's the other way around. You know, they, they know where to stand and they know, you know, the laws of the game, uh, but it's the environment that probably is, is, a, is a barrier that they need to overcome. Uh, for me, it was the other way around. So, look, I really enjoyed the challenge and I, I, love, the, I love the accountability of, of being a, a referee. Um, it's incredibly different, obviously, to, to, to being a player, um, you know, you know and not, not just in the 80 minutes that you're actually out on the field, but, but also the lifestyle uh, that, that you lead you. There's, there's a lot of travel involved as a referee, particularly at test level, um, because of the neutrality and not being able to referee here in Australia. So, you know, come test, come test windows, you're, you're, you're away for extended periods of time, which is difficult on, on my wife and, and kids. Um, uh, but then fortunately when, when I get home, I, I'm at home, you know, so I get to really sort of uh, embrace those opportunities when I am in the country and, and there's a lot of flexibility about what I do. So I am able to drop the kids off and pick them up and run them around to their extracurricular sports and things like that. So, um, yeah, look, uh, there's a lot, a lot of pluses in what I do, a, a lot, a lot of, a lot of challenges too. But um, it's like any profession, mate. Particularly in professional sport, you know, there's there's things that you need to overcome, and 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 there's always, I guess, the most alluring part of it is is that you're always trying to get better from week to week. You're sort of stripping down your performance, and and you're always trying to make yourself better, um, in, in some respect. The competitive streak mm-hmm. still there, mate. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, mate. <laughs> I was just going to jump in there, Nick, and ask. Um, it's good that you touched on, I guess, some of the strains or stresses that come with travel. Like, although it's a great perk of elite sport, it also can be a bit challenging at times. And maybe from from refereeing recently, if there's more increase in travel as of late, but also your previous experiences, what type of things do you do when you're away to try and keep routine or to get some kind of enjoyment and sense uh, of normality when you're in different hotel room every second night or whatever else you're experiencing? Yeah, I, I guess it, it's it's vastly different to, to when I was a player. You know, as a, as a player, you, you, you're generally on tour with, you know, 30 other guys and, you know, you've got a handful of really close friends uh, that, that you're with. Um, unfortunately, as a match official, you, you spend a lot of the time on the road by yourself. So uh, routine is a massive thing, I think. For 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 me personally, um, whenever I arrive at a, at a new hotel in a new country or what it is I'm going to do, I, I try and control as much as I can about you know what my daily routine is going to look like, um, where I'm going to train, um, and uh, when I'm going to liaise with with you know my coach back here in Australia and and sort out the FaceTime calls with with the kids and all that sort of stuff. So I think uh, if if you can. Get, get a lot of those things sorted um, and, and I guess like block parts of your day out. Uh, you've got a bit of a structure then. Um, so you, you, I guess then you're not wandering aimlessly throughout the day thinking, well, okay, what am I going to do and how am I going to keep busy and, and stuff like that. I think um, personally for me, the, the physical aspect of it is, is a massive. I've found like even when I've finished as a professional player, you've, you've gone from, you know, training, you know, eight or nine times a day and oh, eight or nine times a week and then playing on a weekend to all of a sudden um, not having to be accountable for your, I guess, physical preparation. So 
that was something that when, when I had to retire, you know, a few games into the season, I knew I needed to get sorted out early. And, and the club were really good with that as well. They they said, oh, you know, you might you might you might not have thought of this, but would you like to, you know, do this for our? We had a team charity um, at the time. It was actually mined. Um, uh, the, and they said, you know, would you would you be interested in running the, the London Marathon for them? And running was something that I only ever had to do because it was involved in rugby. But I, I found it was a really good way for, for me to channel my energy and, and working towards something. Uh, and so that's something that I adopted even once rugby had finished was, okay, I, physically I know that I need to keep busy uh, probably because I drive my wife up the wall if I haven't done it. But um, it's uh, it's something that I, I I generally sort out as soon as I land in, in a new country. This is uh, what am I going to do to to keep busy throughout the day? Uh, they're, they're great strategies to hear of creating <laughs> your own routine when you don't necessarily have one. And I no. guess also so nice to hear there the benefits that you've experienced of um, aiding others and how helping others can actually also really help ourselves. Sometimes um, it's great to hear. Oh, now, Nick, you previously mentioned that um, with refereeing, mate, it can sort of be a, a, a negative industry to be a part of or a negative profession, and you're lucky to have your colleagues around you to chat to and, and talk about that, mate. Um, I suppose how prevalent is sort of some of the, the, I suppose, the negative feedback that you guys can get from players, fans, um, coaches, etc. How do you deal with that? And then obviously, as you've mentioned, um, how crucial is it to have your colleagues there? alongside you mate for for a bit of support when you're trying to work through these things uh yeah look it it, it is it, it can get tough i think um you know uh, unfortunately and i was the same as a player you know like also i i wasn't immune to this but you always you, you're probably always seeing the game from a, from a different perspective so i always had a lot of advice to give the referees so it's um i guess i <laughs> probably i'm probably just um maybe copying a little bit of what I dished out. But, it, it, like, in all honesty, the players are, are, are generally really good. You know, it's not the, it's not the feedback from the players um, that uh, that they really need to worry about. You know, like, they're, they're out there and they're, they're professional. They've got their job to do. You're trying to do the job um, it, to the best of your ability as well. Um, but I, I think that's probably something that gets lost on, unfortunately gets lost on the public a lot of the times, is, is at the end of the day, like, the, the match officials, uh, they 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 love the game uh, just as much as any player does, and if not more, because it, like I said, it is a it is a really tough profession, it is a tough environment to operate in. So to turn up week in week out and have um, you know have abuse hurled at you, you, you really need to love the game to to want to keep doing that. Um, and uh, look, I I thankfully I'm I'm not on social media. I, I don't have any of um, any of that stuff, and and I guess a lot of that negativity that that is driven comes from those platforms, you know, from Twitter, from Facebook, from you know Instagram, all that sort of stuff. So, I, I don't um, I don't have any of them. So I, I'm I guess positively um, ignorant <laughs> to a lot of the stuff that's probably getting said about me anyway. So, um, and the other thing is too is is that is that the the older you get, the the less you really care about what people think of you. So I, I can I can sit down with, with my coach now and and we can look at a game and, and I can honestly say where, where I feel like I've made a mistake and, 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 
and where I where I can sort of back the decisions that I've made as well. So, I think if you can if you can sit down and authentically do that, then uh, then you're headed in the right path. Um, the the coaches themselves as well, they always offer really good feedback. Um, uh, and and so I, when they when they pro- provide that, that's something that um, that I really I really take on board because I don't want to lose touch with what the coaches are trying to do with their players because I think once once you start that divide between us and them about what match officials um, are, are doing is different to what coaches and players are trying to do that's that's when you know you, it's a recipe for disaster so um, I, I really take on board their feedback I really take on the feedback of my coach um, and then other than that I sort of just let everything else just wash over me. That um, I guess growth and open mindset I think is is so important not just in in refereeing but having the skills um, and capacity I guess to be okay with being a bit vulnerable, saying you made a mistake, um, admitting and kind of that acceptance process is so important. But I also really like how you touch on the fact that you know some things that you've done a good job of you can reflect of and actually back yourself and say, yep, I made a good good call there. Um, and I think that's really important for us all to remember, like not just reflecting on where we've maybe made errors, but to actually take some time to say, yep, this is what I have achieved and, and this was a good decision. Um, and I think everyone should take that forward to, to learning that lesson of supporting themselves because you're in your own head a lot of the time. So that's good to hear. Yeah, and I think as a well, what I've learned as a match official is you, is you often are your own worst enemy. So um, because you can, you, you obviously we're, we're, we're human. We, we make a lot of mistakes throughout games, and um, if if you've made a mistake and and you can't get past that, then generally that's going to affect the next decision you make, which which will often be another mistake on top of a mistake. So um, I think what what I've probably learned over my my time, and particularly as a referee, I think has been really good is is that um, my my preparation, you know, in in the week leading up to the game, I I, I really try and ensure that I've left sort of no stone unturned, you know, like I, I work really hard throughout the week so I can put myself into a position where I can honestly say to myself that, that I've done everything I can to prepare well for this game, um, which, which then lets me go out into, on, onto the field and just, I know I'm going to make mistakes, but I know that I've done everything I can to, to avoid the amount of mistakes that I'm going to make. So it's quite easy when I look back then and say, right, I made, I made a mistake here. Um, and then it becomes a process issue, not an emotional issue. I go, why did I make that mistake? And, and I can look at it subjectively and say, okay, right, well, I made the mistake because of uh, where I was standing or what I was looking at when it occurred or, or things like that. It's not about – I don't have that emotional baggage about, oh, gosh, what did this mistake do and how am I going to get myself out of that mistake or anything? how am I going just, to justify it? I can, I can put my hand up and just be accountable and just say – Listen, I made a mistake here, and and I think that's refreshing for coaches to hear too, because, and it's certainly players as well, where um, I might just get things wrong, and I see them on the big screen, and unfortunately, I can't I can't overturn the decision I just made, but but it's I, I feel like that it's important to then let the player know and just say, hey, listen, I I think I got that last one wrong, um, and for them, that's that's often enough. They just they just need to know that. Um, that that you're not out there and you don't think that you're getting everything right. <laughs> we're just out there doing our best. So when we do make mistakes and it's clear for the world to see, 
it's important to put your hand up <laughs> and say, yeah, look, I, I got that one wrong. Yeah. No, I definitely think that's a, that's an important one to um, to touch on there, Bez, to uh, to wrap up, mate. Obviously, it's in, important to be willing to acknowledge that, you know, mistakes can and will be made, but if you can own, own them and, and learn from them, mate, uh, people generally respect that. But, uh, mate, thanks for coming on today, mate. It's been... Um, great to get some insight into your career and obviously um, sort of the challenges you've gone through, mate, and how it sort of shaped your approach to, um, you know, a pretty challenging career as a referee at the moment, mate. It's been um, very insightful. Nah, my pleasure, Sauce. Um, Susie, I've, I've enjoyed the chat. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Nick. And yeah, your experiences will be valuable to many, I'm sure. So thanks for sharing. My pleasure. All right, well, on a high note to finish, obviously there's uh, some news around a return to rugby, so hopefully uh, we'll see Nick back on a super rugby field or a club field in the next few months. Oh, I hope so, mate. I, I do hope so. Um, but everything's moving in the right direction, so it is looking positive. Uh, fingers crossed. Well, thanks again, Nick. Much appreciated. And thanks to you, Susie, as well, for coming on. And um, we'll look forward to our, our next episode. Sounds good. My Let's pleasure. to it.